0: Dose Nation, I am James Kent from 2014. This is the Meat Bodies with The Master. My goodness, that is an amazing track. The Meat Bodies, if you like uh, heaviness and heavy guitar, there's uh, plenty more where that came from on the Meat Bodies debut album and their most recent album. I highly recommend it if you uh, are a fan of guitar rock. This is episode six in my ongoing series here at Dose Nation, looking into the darker side of psychedelics and psychedelic culture. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus here in winter, uh, trying to get some other projects done, uh, trying to figure out where I'm going to go from here. Uh, I've been getting some great feedback from the episodes I put out so far, which I might share in later episodes. Some people have thanked me for my analysis of trends and beliefs in psychedelic culture. Other people have been moved or touched by my honesty and frankness in revealing Some of the pitfalls of my own personal journey to the edge of sanity and back again. Hopefully there'll be uh, more of that to come in this episode and future episodes. I'll try not to disappoint you along the way. There are still plenty of stories to be told. I ended the last episode with an hour-long interview between D.M. Turner and Elizabeth Gipps from sometime late in 1994, I would guess. I included that interview because I don't think it's available anywhere else online. I couldn't find it. Uh, The text of that interview is available at tripzine.com. We published the transcript of that interview after D.M. Turner's death. And I still have the audio tape of that interview that was sent to me on cassette back in 1996. I listened to it again while prepping the last episode because I wanted to pull some clips of DM Turner talking about DMT spirits and uh, his use of ketamine and 2CB. And as you can imagine, the whole thing was pretty eerie for me, uh, listening to DM Turner's voice again after all these years, Uh, hearing his command of the subject matter, his enthusiasm, his pride for the little details, his very patient and gentle efforts to correct and redirect Elizabeth Gipps's questions when she was going off on a strange tangent, uh, I thought it was just a very fascinating snapshot of psychedelic culture from that time, where the New Age West Coast hippie movement was sort of bumping up against the uh, rave movement. And uh, Elizabeth Gibbs was definitely of that hippie generation, trying to pull you know the meat out of DM Turner, who was more cyberpunk, underground reality hacker than uh, anything like a hippie. And the generational gap there, the ideology gap, the differences in the personality between Elizabeth Gibbs, who's kind of a I don't know a flighty socialite tripper. And uh, D.M. Turner, who is the more hardcore underground research chemical uh, bio-knot who logged hundreds or thousands of trips under his belt. Anyway, I hope you found that interview as fascinating as I did. Um, People out there, feel free to chop off that interview and post it wherever you want. Um, D.M. Turner and Elizabeth Gipps are both gone now. So I don't think anyone will care if, this, if that interview is posted, um, but I think it's a valuable look at the culture from that time. So this here is the sixth episode. I'm settling into the format a little bit. I'm trying to examine some psychedelic trends, turn them on their head, and maybe explore the ways in which our you know typical ideologies that we pass around may or may not be helpful to understanding what is going on in the psychedelic experience and, in fact, may be dangerous. Um, There are some notions that I find ultimately misguided um, that I wanted to highlight in these episodes. Um, For instance, the notion of looking inside yourself to find answers, I think, Is ultimately misguided but you hear this in in you know spiritual wisdom religious wisdom philosophy psychology and especially psychedelics the idea of looking within to find answers and the notion that you're gonna find any answers at all looking within seems to me a a, a bogus concept because imagine what you had to offer the world when you were born What was inside of you? What answers did you have inside of you when you were born? Well, you didn't have any answers. You didn't have nothing. You weren't formed with any information. You were an empty vessel, more or less, besides what your genetics and nurturing had to offer. But in order to find answers about who you are, why you're here, what you need to survive, what this life is all about... You need to actually go out into the world and look outside of yourself to find that knowledge. You can't just look within and find the answers because you start empty. Answers come into you from the outside. Leary's message of looking within yourself was wrong. Looking within is a round trip through the past back to the present. It only shows you what you've learned from day one and catches you up to where you are now. It's like digging through old information. It doesn't tell you anything that you need to know going forward. So ideas like that, that people cling to and pass on through books, they parrot each other. Gurus parrot each other. They take something that one guru said maybe modify the language a little bit, and then looking within yourself, freeing your mind, then translates into something, you know, hipper or cooler like being a psychonaut. Yeah, I'm a psychonaut. I'm exploring the inner caverns of my own mind. I'm digging deeper and deeper for answers. And really a psychonaut is somebody who's just, spends a lot of time flipping through the card catalog of their own memories. And I'm not sure There's a whole lot of new information to find there. So this episode is called the master and that little piece of information I just gave you about looking within and seeking answers inside. That's the kind of spiritual bullshit that you get from somebody who calls themselves a master. Name this episode, the master musical track from the meat bodies, the master great track. What is this all about who is the master what is the master well the master is a creature and a creation of the new age movement a movement that allowed for the creation of cults centered around these customized a la carte spiritual systems created by a guru or a teacher of spiritual wisdom And in the wake of the social experimentation of the beat and the hippie generation, there were a lot of young, naive minds pliable on new drugs waiting for someone to step in and exploit these minds and exploit the holes in rational thought for their own personal gain. And I find it a little funny and maybe ironic that in the generation after Tim Leary promised that LSD would let you free your mind, look inside, find the answers from within, self-actualize, find your higher self, tune in, turn on, drop out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Behind this whole self-exploration and self-empowerment movement, people became more interested and more infatuated with gurus and masters than ever before and to illustrate that point all you need to do is look at the fact that since this time in the late 60s anybody who's some sort of expert or fringe celebrity in some sort of uh you know self-actualization movement they are always referred to as a guru even if they have no spiritual training You could be a marketing guru. You could be a technology guru. You could be, you know, a yoga guru. You can be a guru in anything. And this all comes from people's willingness to let an expert or a master guide them and shape them in the master's image. And if you think about it, there's there's a flaw here. Because... In academic circles and in technical circles and in, uh, you know, trade circles, there are degrees that you get that show that you're an expert. You can get a PhD, you can get a technical degree, you can get a contracting license, you can show that you're an expert. And when you become an expert, you get a title, like doctor or, you know, PhD. A guru, by nature, has no actual degree or education, otherwise they would have some title other than guru. A guru just talks about stuff like they're an expert and gets people to believe that they are, in fact, an expert. And towards the end of the 60s, gurus started multiplying like rabbits, like mosquitoes, masters were coming out of the woodwork everywhere there were gurus that just sort of popped up overnight seeking to take control of young people shell-shocked by psychedelics and and move them into these pseudo-spiritual cults or movements and they could be anything from you know the moonies to uh, the weather underground to Zen buddhism to holotropic breathing to transcendental meditation to any number of cults and communes and intentional communities and practice groups that came out of psychedelic exploration and it, it, the, the the strangest most ironic thing is that the gurus always teach self-actualization freedom of thought and really what they were practicing was social control, and thought control. And often they would use uh, the lingo of you know, freeing your mind and self-actualizing to promote an ideology that condoned radical self-experimentation, hedonism, free sex, free love, and uh, what I call the permissiveness of depravity within the context of ideology. And this permissiveness of depravity, under the context of ideology, is all litigated under the watchful eye of a master. And when people enter into these groups or contracts with a guru, thinking that they're being sold one thing, very often what they're receiving is the opposite of what they're being sold. They're not being given freedom. They're not being given self-actualization. They're given new rules and new experimental practices to follow, which is, to me, the opposite of freedom. It's just changing one yoke and chain for another yoke and chain. And, but this is what the masters do. This is what the gurus do. They convince you that the system that you're living under now is somehow not satisfying or not meeting your needs and leaving you in a state of existential despair. And if you just change up your routine and do what the master says, do what the guru says, well, then everything will be hunky-dory from here on out. Because why would the master lie to you? So in this episode, I wanted to talk about ayahuasca. Because of all the psychedelics out there in the world, probably none are as closely linked to a master-student relationship as ayahuasca. Because as most of you know, ayahuasca is traditionally prepared and distributed by a shaman or a master who says what goes into the ayahuasca, what the special brew is, um, who gets to perform the ceremony, who gets to participate in the ceremony, and also how much each person gets to drink, more or less. So the master, the shaman, in an ayahuasca circle, or in, in the context of traditional and modern ayahuasca ceremonies, Is in control of the ceremony and this is unlike most psychedelic exploration except for uh, maybe peyote doing peyote in a Native American circle or sweat lodge Um, there are really no uh, mushroom masters you don't go to a master to have them prepare your mushrooms and tell you how to take your trip you can you know grow mushrooms or just pick them off of a lawn somewhere You don't need a master to deliver uh, mushrooms to you. LSD is, you know, and um, other chemicals that are made in a laboratory. Uh, I guess theoretically the master is the chemist who who makes the drug, but they don't really sit down and guide you through the ceremony and tell you what to believe and how much to take. Usually with, you know, uh, chemical solutions that are made in a lab, Once the master finishes making the substance, they're done. Uh, They don't then go out and preach and tell people taking their drugs how to use it. That is more often relegated to a guru, a cultural guru, someone like Timothy Leary, who's out there telling people what they should be doing with the drug, but not actually making the drug themselves. But with ayahuasca, there's a very special relationship with the shaman the drug, the ceremony, and the participant, the master is essentially in control or provides the illusion of control over the entire ceremony. And that's one of the reasons why I find ayahuasca and ayahuasca culture to be so dubious, especially in the context of this modern-day ayahuasca tourism where people go seek out a master so that they can deliver some kind of promised experience, whether that's insight, healing, uh, spiritual awakening, uh, an introduction to a spirit world, or whatever. With ayahuasca, it's always, I am going to go seek out a master to deliver this experience to me. Now, it wasn't always like this. Um, in, back when I was coming up in the 90s, ayahuasca was not really a thing. I mean, people knew about it, and occasionally you would meet somebody who had gone to the Amazon and taken ayahuasca. Um, Peter Gorman comes to mind. He was a photographer who, I think, in the 80s went down to Peru and started uh, studying with shaman and taking ayahuasca and sort of creating one of the first gringo outposts there in South America where people would come down and try ayahuasca in a traditional or mestizo uh, ceremony and previous to that time there was really very little about ayahuasca in the public information do- domain i think the earliest cultural experience with ayahuasca is uh, the Yahe letters where william burroughs went to south america and tried ayahuasca and or Yahe and then uh, sent these letters back to Allen Ginsberg to tell him about his experience. Um, I'm gonna quote here from the Yahe letters. Uh, this is William Burroughs. This is the most powerful drug I have ever experienced. Yahe is not like anything else. It produces the most complete derangement of the senses. And this is from a man who was a notorious drunk and opium addict. Uh, he knows from derangement of the senses. It, I, for those of you who may not be super familiar with William Burroughs, he was a, a writer and a poet in, in the, the 60s um, who kind of came out of the Beat Generation, uh, was sort of adjacent to the Beat Generation. Um, but one of the, the stories of William Burroughs that, uh, that, that comes to mind the most and leads into this whole Yahweh story is uh, the tale of how Burroughs shot his wife, Joan Vollmer, through the head during a stunt in Mexico. And I'm going to quote here from Barry Miles' book, Call Me Burroughs, quote, The couple were drunk in a flat above an American bar when they decided to play William Tell. Burroughs had been attracted to guns ever since his youth in St. Louis when his father would take him duck hunting and he carried a pistol with him wherever he went. This time he tried to shoot a glass off of Joan's head. His hand wavered and he shot her in the head. Burroughs spent 13 days in jail before his family managed to bribe the proper people to get him released on bail. Before the case could come to trial, Burroughs skipped town, first going to Central America in search of a drug called Yahe. Now, there were different reports. Uh, Burroughs was probably drunk when he decided to play uh, William Tell and shot his wife, Joan Vollmer, in the head. An act that is so unbelievably grisly and bizarre that you would think it was fiction. You would think this is something out of a William Burroughs novel, um, some weird sci-fi bullshit about a guy shooting his wife in the head, playing a game of William Tell. But not only is this a true story, this is the entire reason that... William Burroughs had to go to Central America. Now, this act of shooting his wife in the head accidentally is echoed in a film called Renegade, or Blueberry, which is a psychedelic Western that recounts the tale of a cowboy who accidentally shoots his fiancee in the head while trying to rescue her from a rapist. Spoiler alert. We don't know that that's what happened until the end of the movie. But this accidental shooting of the fiancé is the subplot that leads Renegade, or Blueberry, uh, from the French comic book, on this spiritual journey into the desert where he finds Native Americans who give him uh, some ayahuasca or San Pedro cactus brew to heal his psychic wounds. And uh, he has all sorts of trips through... The crazy darkness of the ayahuasca world and uh, the final shootout happens in this crazy psychedelic space I would highly recommend this film um, as a diversion here into uh, ayahuasca lore with the special bonus of knowing that that scene um, that reveal that blueberry or a renegade actually shot his fiance in the head accidentally and and the revelation he has of that horror uh, under the influence of ayahuasca, it it rings back to the whole Burroughs thing. Why these two events are tied together in pop culture, in modern lore, I don't know, but it only adds to the craziness of of ayahuasca's legend. So for a long time, uh, this was the only thing that was known in popular culture about Yaje or ayahuasca that William Burroughs this notorious drug fiend and junkie went down to South America and got his ass kicked by the most powerful drug I have ever experienced quote a complete derangement of the senses and you know with good reason people felt like maybe they should stay away from ayahuasca that it wasn't you know like mushrooms or peyote or LSD it was something of a different level altogether and I have something here in my notes. I don't know where this came from. I don't know if I wrote this or if I copied it out of something else. But um, I'm just gonna read it here for you because uh, it's 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 here in my notes. And I wrote, of all the psychedelic drugs, ayahuasca is in the top two of the darkest and most deranged experiences. I don't know what the other one might be. Uh, maybe mushrooms? But for me, I put it in the top two. And then I have a little poem I wrote underneath it. It says, purging the dark, embracing the light, twisting the flesh and bone like a sponge, squeezing every bit of filth out of it, as if very life depended on it. It is not sickness. It is cleansing. Oh, yes. So accurate. So true. uh, So wise. (laughs) Again. I don't, know, I don't know where that came from. Maybe I wrote it uh, after a trip at some point, but uh, there it is in uh, this, this list of notes that I'm going through uh, for these episodes. So in the early 90s, ayahuasca was not a thing. It was all MDMA and 2CB and research chemicals and the rave era. And you can see this reflected in the uh, interview with D.M. Turner, where he was really mostly interested in like smokable DMT and uh, doing things like mixing cocktails like ketamine and 2CB. That was the going thing. That was the, the thing that people were doing back then. And in the mid-90s, the rave scene kind of cracked out. All the people who had been taking MDMA for a couple years you know, kind of stopped feeling the love. There's a diminishing return on that MDMA scene, um, and it eventually spiraled out. There are some legendary tales of that scene that maybe I'll talk about in another episode. But by the late 90s, 98 or 99, a cultural shift had happened, and suddenly research chemicals and cocktailing was out, and ayahuasca became the next big thing. And I will forward a hypothesis here that this surge of interest in ayahuasca in the late 90s comes specifically from a single point in time and space, which is the fall of 1998, when an article was published in the Maps Bulletin entitled, Ayahuasca and Cancer, One Man's Experience, by Donald Topping. And as I'll talk about a little bit later, this was what I call a grand slam home run for the psychedelic movement because in one article you have the three pillars of psychedelic legitimacy all coming together. First, the spiritual pillar, ayahuasca is part of a religious ceremony and therefore theoretically it should be protected under the First Amendment of the United States, the Religious Freedom Act. So you have a bona fide spiritual component. Secondly, ayahuasca has a long history of cultural use. There's the historical cultural context argument that this is a legitimate practice that's been going on for generations, uh, that we have no right to make illegal or delegitimize for cultural reasons. And then th- the third pillar of legitimacy is the medical argument. These substances have profound use in in medical, clinical treatment of diseases, and therefore we should take another look at them. So in this one article, Ayahuasca and Cancer, One Man's Experience, you have the spiritual, the historical context, and the medical all in one place. And I'll read you a little bit here from the article um, in which Donald Topping, a professor at the University of Hawaii, With liver cancer after surgery decided to forego chemotherapy and try ayahuasca Mm -hmm. instead now the reason he gave for for forgoing chemotherapy because he said he was scared it would be an uncomfortable experience for him and he wanted to try something else he did not want to go through the pain and discomfort of chemotherapy so he decided to look elsewhere to find a Santo Daime group that he could try ayahuasca instead of chemotherapy for treating the remission of his cancer. And here you can see Donald Topping going against the advice of his doctor. He, qu- quoting from the article, quote, "'Three weeks after surgery, I went to my appointment with the oncologist who proposed beginning the chemotherapy treatment immediately.' When I told him that I had decided against it because I did not believe further assault on my body would be beneficial, he seemed miffed, perhaps even insulted. When I told him of my plan to follow a program of alternative therapies, he snickered, but wished me well." Quote. So in this th- two or three sentences here, Donald Topping is saying, he believed he knew better than his oncologist. And that after the surgery to remove the cancer from his liver, he didn't need chemotherapy because he was going to pursue alternative medicines. Now, I've talked to some oncologists about this, and they tell me that really the only way to get rid of liver cancer is with surgery. And Donald Topping had had the surgery. I guess guess he says he had maybe half of his liver removed with the cancer. But the point of the chemotherapy is not to kill the cancer in your liver. It's to keep whatever cancer is left over in your body from spreading to other areas and metastasizing. So really the chemotherapy is the last shot after surgery to bomb any trace of cancerous cells out of your body so that they cannot spread. So when Donald Topping decided he knew better than his oncologist, of course the guy was going to be miffed and insulted because this is the guy's job. And Donald Topping, a professor at the University of Washington, decided that he knew better and that he was going to follow a program of alternative therapies. Well, I'm, I'm surprised the doctor even allowed him to do that, but more and more doctors let people opt out of chemotherapy. I mean, you can't force somebody to take chemotherapy, but if people want to pursue alternative therapies, I guess that's their prerogative. And as a side note, uh, this is exactly what Steve Jobs did after he got liver cancer. Uh, He decided to forego chemotherapy, and I'm sorry, it was a pancreatic cancer. But after he got surgery he decided to forego chemotherapy and take his own alternative medicine regimen which eventually led to him wasting away and dying as we all remember. But Donald topping decided he knew what was best. he found a Santo Dime group and uh, he uh, took three sessions with ayahuasca in the following months and I'll read some of the quotes from this this article talking about his experiences first experiences. I saw plants, serpents, birds, and jaguar-like animals soaring, swirling, twisting, and racing at almost lightning speed throughout my entire system as they were exploring a new habitat. At first, they didn't pay any attention to me, even though I tried to stop them long enough to have a closer look. Before long, however, one of them would race up to me, pause momentarily, then rush off as though it had urgent business somewhere else. Then another would come up in my face and do the same thing. There was no time for any communication between myself and the things that I was seeing. It was though they wanted to take a complete inventory of who I was and what was going on inside me before they were ready to talk. Okay, that's from the first experience. From the second experience, quote, I again felt the presence of the plant racing through my body, peeking and poking into every nook and cranny in search of something to work on, to straighten out, to put back in order, to polish. There was a definite presence with similar shapes colors and sounds but unlike the first time there was no message that i can discern the plant was just busy doing its work and i left out of the first quote that the message that he received uh, from the plant the first time was that his his body had undergone a recent trauma which was the surgery that had really knocked him back, that he needed to recover from. I don't know if he needed the plant to tell him this message, but that was that was the, me- the, the insightful message that he got, was that, oh, he had recently had a traumatic experience that he was recovering from. Okay. In the second experience, there wasn't a big message, but he felt that the plant was still doing its work to uh, clean out his body. In the third experience, quote, As the images and shapes began to appear, they had an air of joy and exuberance. The serpents were smiling, the jaguars were laughing, and the giant birds swooped down over me, caressing me with their outstretched wings. A parade of persons, both known and unknown, streamed by, each of them smiling and reaching out to touch me, and tell me, by look, that they loved me. As the serpents and plants twisted and flashed before me, they appeared to be smiling and reassuring me that they had looked everywhere inside of me, and that everything was okay. And as the evening went on, this cycle kept repeating. Images would come directly toward me at breakneck speed, smiling and laughing, then veer off for another tour of my entire system. I heard myself chuckling softly under the starlit sky. And so by the end of his third experience, uh, Donald Topping uh, began to feel like he was healing and that the plant was, was happy at, at finding no trace of, of, of any toxins or poisons in his system. And of course, I'm sure by this time, uh, he had healed from his surgery uh, fairly well by that point. This was months after the original surgery. And then by the fourth experience, he quotes, This time the onset was much more gradual and never reached the intensity of the previous trip. The images were there, birds, serpents, plants, people, but they were much less energetic, almost blasé. They seemed to be telling me, We've already been this route, and we told you what we found. Let's try something new. And since I had entered the experience with a fixed agenda, the plant reacted as though it were bound. I now look upon that trip as my fault for not trusting the plant to take the lead. If Ayahuasca could talk in words, I'm sure it would have told me during that first trip, take the energy that I'm giving you and run with it. Latch on to one of the animals and go for a ride. There is nothing preventing you from soaring to new heights of consciousness and life. And this article ends after the four trips over a period of i don't know six months or a year the article ends with a report from his doctor that his tests came back negative his blood tests came back negative his cancer had not returned and the doctor congratulated him for uh, finding a way to keep the cancer from returning and what happened to donald topping seven years later he died from cancer but it wasn't liver cancer It was cancer that had spread to all different parts of his body now why did the cancer spread to all different parts of his body if the ayahuasca had told him that it had taken care of everything and there was there was nothing there was nothing left to clean out well maybe the cancer came back maybe he never really got rid of all the cancer with the ayahuasca which is what allowed it to spread to the rest of his body Again, the chemotherapy after the surgery is to keep the cancer from spreading and finding another place to, to nest and host itself, not specifically to keep the, the tumor that had been taken out from regrowing, although in, in some cases it's for both. But specifically for liver cancer, this is what happened to Donald Topping. He died from cancer, not specifically related to his liver cancer, but spread throughout his body. Now, he was able to live for seven years after that original liver cancer, which some people call amazing, some people call typical, some people think that maybe his life could have even extended farther beyond that. I think he was maybe 71, 75, I I, I would have to go back and look that up, it's not in my notes, when he died. But sometime in his late 60s and early 70s, he got cancer, got the surgery, skipped the chemo, decided to go with ayahuasca instead and claimed that he had a very successful time treating his cancer with ayahuasca and this article appeared in the maps bulletin in 1998. now in the seven years between the time that that article appeared and donald topping died the ayahuasca movement exploded to hear people talk from that time there was nothing that ayahuasca couldn't cure could cure cancer, it could cure AIDS, it could cure chronic fatigue syndrome, it could cure fibromyalgia, it could cure herpes, it could cure anything. It could cure any sort of problem that normal medicine, Western medicine, couldn't fix. Ayahuasca, no problem. You just go down, you see the shaman, you do a few ceremonies, you clean everything out. That was the story. And, you know, like, I, like I've like i said in previous episodes, there's somebody living this in the late 90s i was not immune to this idea i was ready to go back to medical school and study oncology so that i could do clinical therapy with ayahuasca on cancer patients and i talked to many 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 other people during this time who were going to medical school or in medical school or studying medicine for the specific purpose of using ayahuasca to treat cancer based On this article, or this article on top of other things that they already had heard about ayahuasca. And still to this day, still to this day, people who go down to South America to seek out an ayahuasca ceremony, people with cancer, after surgery, they forego the chemotherapy thinking that the ayahuasca is going to help them. And the ayahuasca may help them in some way, but it is not a replacement for chemotherapy. And I have seen enough ayahuasca documentaries to see sick people going to the Amazon in the hopes that the shaman, the master, is somehow going to magically heal them, not in an uncomfortable way where you have to be on chemo for three months and your hair falls out and you can't keep food down and it may be painful and it may be uncomfortable, but in a fun way where you get to go explore this spiritual world where spirits come in and polish you from the inside out and check you up and down and make sure that everything is clean and wonderful. Now, this is one of the most dangerous myths of modern psychedelic culture that I can think of. Giving sick people false hope that they can go to the Amazon and cure something that's wrong with them. That's the first part, that's, that's wrong, but I can understand why that happens. But the second part, giving people the idea that they can opt out of a therapy that is known to be successful, that's known to have high success rates. I'm gonna opt out of that part of the therapy and then I'm gonna go for this magical alternative that I think will be more interesting and more fun because I get to go to the Amazon and I get to try something new. Now, I always think to myself, why not do the chemotherapy first? And then, after the three months of chemo, then you can go down to the Amazon. Then you can go and have your, your, your final cleaning and your recuperation and your recovery period. Why skip the chemo? And the answer is always, well, I'm scared of the chemo. I'm scared that I'm gonna f- it's going to make me feel bad. And to me, this is just the craziest thing I can think of in the world, because honestly, what's scarier than dying from malignant cancer spreading all over your body? Three months of chemo surely cannot be that bad. Have anything against ayahuasca i've taken ayahuasca uh, many times um, never with the aid of a shaman although i have witnessed ayahuasca ceremonies um, and i have made my own ayahuasca numerous times uh, and got pretty good at it but um the thing i do have a problem with is shamanism and the kind of disinformation that's out there specifically because of this shamanic mythology. And there's all sorts of shamanism, schwar, mestizo, shibipo, uh, you know, mixes of different kinds of cultural shamanism. And I'm not here to indict all forms of shamanism. I'm specifically talking about this modern ayahuasca shamanism or ayahuasca tourism, where the shaman is elevated as a spiritual figure as opposed to maybe just a healer which is what you always hear about shamanism people say shamanism is about healing it's about the messy business of treating sick people and as i've been reminded by rick strassman and Stephen byer and dennis mckenna and many others who i've had snippets of this conversation with shamanism is not all about healing I mean, that's one part of it, but there's also this other deep, black magic, paranoid world full of witchcraft and black curses and these magic darts, the verote, that the shaman sends out to do his bidding, his or her bidding. And shamanism is not specifically about using this or that plant to heal this or that malady, It really does rely on this pantheon of spirit helpers to come and aid people in their healing. Uh, And I'm not talking about, like, plant spirits. Like, oh, we're going to call in the plant spirits. No, the shaman have a whole pantheon of spirits that they call on to help them, including the spirits like Jesus and uh, Mother Mary, and uh, the spirits of Western doctors and uh, computers and robots, and aliens from Mars. I mean, their pantheon goes out there. You you can you can give them any sort of of crazy cultural figure and they probably have some sort of spirit to match that they can call upon. So when people say uh, shamanism is about healing, it's a healing paradigm. I have to think no, it's a magical paradigm. And healing is just one of the forms of magic that they they purport to be able to perform. To them, healing is not a cause and effect. Oh, you have this, I'm going to give you this. Uh, you have this symptom, I'm going to treat you with that. Uh, for some shaman it is. I mean, I'm sure for a lot of peop- a lot of shaman that do actual clinical work with people in their village, as opposed to shaman who treat gringos who fly in for a week. The, the original shaman are healers. That's one of the functions that they fill. Uh, They do have a pharmacopeia of plants that they could use to treat certain things, but it's a very magical culture. It's not a scientific culture. It's not a cause and effect culture. It's a superstitious culture where ritual and outcome are not always bound by cause and effect. There's a magical prayer or a hope or a crossing of the fingers that happens in the middle somewhere where the spirits will just sort of sort out what happens. And, and what you see in shamanic culture is a whole society of people synced to that same superstitious or paranoid reality where the cause of disease may be a curse that the witch down the road put on you, or the brujo. And the cure may not be, let's take this medicine. The cure may be, oh, well, we need to send a black dart back at that brujo, and then your disease will get better. And, you know, this just boggles my mind that that anyone would buy into this paradigm. But this is legitimately the paradigm that they use. This is part of their process. And as a Westerner coming into this magical reality, one of the hardest things to do or one of the first things you try to do is figure out what's real and what isn't. Because there are various powers ascribed to a shaman. In addition to healing... There's clairvoyance, the ability to see the future, spirit channeling, being able to cross the veil between life and death, astral travel, telepathy, uh, spirit flight, being able to see through the eyes of an animal or uh, another person, shape shifting, actually taking the form of an animal, dream invasion, being able to project themselves into the dream of one of their students, along with a variety of other curses and black magic, brujo magic. And by all accounts, there is nothing too magical that a shaman will claim that they can't do. I think one of the calling cards of a shaman or an ayahuasca shaman, at least the ones that I've read about or interacted with, is they will claim that they can cure any illness, and they will claim that they can they can see all over the galaxy. They will claim that they have the powers of a god. And early European introduction to shamanism was mixed. The Spanish conquistadors who came to the New World saw witchcraft in shamanic ceremonies, but were happy to look the other way and allow it if the natives agreed to be converted to Catholicism. And they included all the Catholic saints in their rituals praising Jesus Christ and Mother Mary alongside of their their local pantheon of deities and spirits that was okay to the Catholics because they thought that even though they were engaging in pagan witchcraft the introduction of Christian Saints into their ceremony would mean that there is a possibility that they could be saved so that they had done their jobs some of the earliest accounts of shamanism from the English, the English sailors that came to the New World were highly scrutinized by the Royal Society. There's, there's one account of William Dampierre, who is, a, who is an amazing uh, early naturalist and pirate in the New World. He uh, precedes Darwin by a generation, but his study of the New World and plants and animals in the New World were actually a precursor to Darwin's theory of natural selection. So Dampierre was a very observant naturalist a pirate buccaneer who was one of the first Englishmen to describe a shamanic ritual, a healing ritual to in writing to the Royal Society back in England. And essentially what happened was he had a large laceration that wasn't healing and he went to see a Negro shaman it was according to his words, it's a, a black shaman in uh, the Caribbean or the uh, the northern part of South America and this shaman uh, made some kind of poultice and put it on the wound, but he also sang a small chant and blew tobacco smoke into the wound and sprinkled tobacco leaves on the wound as part of the ceremony. And even though the wound had become septic and Dampierre had been traveling around with this wound for a couple of weeks, the treatment worked and the wound healed and it actually only left a small scar. And the Royal Society were very interested in the fact that blowing tobacco smoke and sprinkling tobacco <laughs> and singing a, a chant while healing the wound somehow helped in the healing. And they were very curious to see if they could recreate that. But Dompierre also noticed that when the shaman was asked to treat a sick animal, he used the same exact therapy, singing and a little tobacco. And he didn't know quite what to make of that. Um, Medicine, of course, took off in the New World uh, shortly after that. Um, And they they moved away from their system of bleeding and leeches, which was still popular during that day. But in the New World, there were all of these sort of new types of magical treatments that helped influence modern medicine, even though they weren't really scientific at their core. And I'll give you one of my favorite examples. To illustrate how shamanism is so far different from Western medicine that we just can't even wrap our minds around it and this is so here's one thing that I was told uh, when I first interviewed Kat Harrison I was gonna pull out the tape and give you the, the sound bite of this this quote but I'm just gonna paraphrase it because it's I've, I've heard this many times from many different people and that is one of the ways an apprentice shaman does his or her training is that they go off into the jungle for two weeks and go on a strict diet of eating tree bark only. And when I heard this for the first time, I thought, what, what the hell is this all about? Yeah. Cat Harrison said that a shaman will go off into the forest for two weeks to be on a strict diet of tree bark because that teaches them how to heal. It's not a visionary exercise, it's more of a a trial by fire, I guess, where living on this tree bark for two weeks causes the shaman to go into some sort of mental state, um, maybe a a state of malnutrition or stress or something that teaches them about the internal bodily bodily systems and how to treat those bodily systems uh, from parasites or poison or whatever it might be. But you can understand my confusion when I was told that their medical training consists of going into the jungle and eating bark for two weeks, which does not give me a lot of confidence in their medical abilities. Because I want to flip this around and ask you that if you went to a doctor, say you had a stomach pain, or you had trouble breathing, or you had, you know, a constant migraine, something that you couldn't cure, and you went to the doctor and you ask them what their qualifications were and what medical school they went to and where they did their residency, if they told you that they were qualified to treat you because they spent two weeks in the jungle eating tree bark, you may think twice about letting them treat you. (laughs) If that is their primary qualification is they did a ritual by fire where they went out into the jungle and ate tree bark for two weeks, I don't think that would give me a high level of confidence for anybody to treat me for anything. Um, It just doesn't make sense to a Western mind that is used to people skilled in specialty practice, specialty medicine of diagnosis and treatment. Eating tree bark does not fall under the category of professional training. So the shamanic modality is completely different. It's a magical modality. Their relationship to cause and effect is very loose and freaky. And it's more magic than science. So let's start with that. That's the key to it. Now, what's real about it? If it's a magical system and people claim that it works, what is the reality there behind the magical system? And this is where it gets tricky because ayahuasca shamanism or um, Amazonian shamanism may be useful for treating some ailments. That's where it becomes tricky because sometimes ayahuasca shamanism can heal. It can do the things that the shaman promises that it will, even though it's only, I think, maybe a a small handful of things that it's good for. And let me all kind of try and break it down for you here to, to tell you why I think that. There is a huge, huge part of ayahuasca shamanism that has nothing to do with drinking ayahuasca or spirits it is all about the extreme diets that people go on or dietas that you need to do as a precursor to the ceremony and i love how psychedelic people like to say dieta in spanish as if it makes it more spiritual or more romantic but it's just a diet it's just a restrictive diet you can say dieta to make it sound cooler but it's just you know A very restrictive diet of bland food like plantains and yams and water with no sugar or salt or alcohol. Plantains, yams, water just really bland low-protein food for you know two or three days maybe a week before you take the ceremony. And there are reasons for that. There are reasons why there are such extreme diets. And I'll just mention and set aside the fact that many cults when they're indoctrinating uh, new students or new members, they will put the new members on a very restrictive diet very much like this, um, plantains, yams, sweet potatoes, water, for many days where they put the people on a low-protein, low-fat diet, so their energy levels go down and their resistance goes down. So it's called softening them up, so that when you put them in the ritual, and you give them the chance to have the revelatory experience, their resistance to that experience has been pushed down to nothing. So they have no energy to resist whatever it is that is sold to you in the revelatory ceremony that happens at the end of this dieting process. So the dieting process is a way of you know, lowering people's energy and resistance to programming. That's the way it's done in a cult setting the way it's done in the shamanic setting is maybe a little bit different however i believe that that is part of what is going on people's inner resistance to pressure and change is lowered by the, this low protein low fat diet that they're 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 forced to go on before partaking in the ceremony that's one part now a very cursory examination of shamanism and the fascination that they have with dieting and purging has led me to the conclusion that the bulk, the large percentage of the entire shamanic healing methodology is to flush out and reboot the biological mechanisms that regulate digestion and metabolism. Purging and rebooting the system is their major healing modality. Now you can say I'm being overly reductive here, but this is the not-so-hidden big secret of ayahuasca shamanism, which I can summarize for you in as few words as possible. The entire healing methodology is built around the approach of cleansing, purging, and resetting the internal biological processes. There are other shamanic therapies for specific problems, such as, you know, bombs and pulstices and herbal baths and specialized medicinal herb preparations. But the amazing bulk of internal medicine, internal medicine for treating maladies that are not on the surface of the body, the amazing bulk of backwater or traditional Amazonian shamanic medicine revolves around either purging you out, stopping you up so your diarrhea stops, Or controlling the flow of water and effluence through your body with specialized diets and herbal preparations. Controlling the flow of water and effluence through your body with diets and herbal preparations. Now this is extremely important in the Amazon, of course, where they don't always have access to clean water. And and food poisoning and waterborne illness and waterborne parasites and foodborne parasites are a constant problem. Something that we take for granted in the Western civilized world is that our food is clean and regulated and it comes from sources that are not infested with parasites. In the Amazon, they don't have that luxury. Everything they eat may make them sick. So the ability to instantly purge your system, clean it out, expel all the water in your system, stop you up and control the water flow through your body is really a life-saving process for them. It's not something that is used very often in Western medicine, but it is a legitimate medical form of treatment. Now I could make a digression here into Galen and the history of Western medicine practiced in Europe in regards to the flow of humors through the body, basically fluids through the body or spirits through the body and how these systems relate to traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or other ancient medical practices that are not part of modern medicine. These are all medicines that have to do with the movement of fluids through the body. And I'll just say for the record that a lot of the medicine in pre-industrialized countries deals with the problems of gastrointestinal disorders, like I said, related to unclean water and food sources, malnourishment, dysentery, opportunistic infections, intestinal parasites, fevers, dehydration, starvation. Those are the top problems that a shaman or a rural shaman or rural medicine man or curandera needs to treat. Those are the daily stressors. Those are the killers, not anxiety and depression and cancer and diabetes and obesity and heart disease. Those are the industrialized diseases that we have to deal with. But the pre-industrialized diseases are really more about keeping food down, keeping your body hydrated so that you can digest food and have energy. Dehydration, malnutrition, these are things that really the shaman is, is best at treating because those are the problems that they see among their people, their tribe members, every day these are not first world problems these are real third world problems daily problems and this is not spiritual medicine this is rural medicine rural medicine for people who are poor generationally poor with no access to modern medicine shamanism is essentially a folk medicine for poor people who cannot get real first world medical treatment And the things that they have to deal with diarrhea parasites dehydration malnutrition dysentery these diseases will kill you they will kill you if they don't get treated so shaman in the third world dealing with rural maladies those are what they treat best those things are what they treat best because they have a bag of tricks for all of those maladies because like i said they're the ones that that need the most urgency in treating the western diseases that people want to treat these these spiritual maladies of depression or anxiety or you know i need to find myself or whatever those are uncommon in the rural regions where where shamans do their daily practice those are first world problems that people are looking to ayahuasca to treat and it may be putting a square peg in a round hole to use ayahuasca to treat these problems but that is not going to stop a shaman from saying that they can treat those problems if there are a line of people with money in their pocket waiting for that treatment so when gringos come down to the jungle to get treated for you know depression or cancer or whatever it is that's giving them trouble they're expecting some form of magic but shamanism is not magic It's a specific healing methodology based on purging and resetting internal systems. That is the primary tool that they have, and they use it over and over and over. They believe that if you have cancer, all you need to do is purge hard enough to get all of the cancer out of you, which is kind of an insane thing when you think about how cancer works. So imagine you have a mole on your skin. A cancerous mole. That's like a tumor that you can see on the outside of your body. Imagine being able to drink enough ayahuasca to cause that mole to just pop off your skin. It doesn't make sense. The the cellular tissue of cancer is, is locked into the organ that the cancer is growing on. You can't just take ayahuasca and purge it out of you even though i have heard people say that this is what happens that ayahuasca goes in and melts the tumors and allows you to to purge them out either through vomiting or diarrhea and i just have to say that sadly that's that's not the case purging and resetting your internal systems will make you feel better it makes you feel cleaned out inside it makes you feel lighter it clears your head it resets your circadian rhythms so that your serotonin and dopamine balance come back into more like a natural order. It causes a a mild mania, a hypomania that may last for a couple days that make you feel almost impervious. So the fact that this particular treatment leaves you feeling clean and maybe even reinvigorated and reborn, it doesn't mean that it's actually gotten rid. Of everything in you that's causing you trouble may make you feel that way but there's no evidence that it actually does what it says it does when it comes to treating cancer or diabetes or you know opportunistic viruses like AIDS or herpes and when you break down what's going on in an ayahuasca ceremony you start to realize that what is happening to people is akin to a ritual poisoning. I kind of look at ayahuasca as a poison, uh, more so than other psychedelics, even though psychedelics have have toxic effects on many people at, at the right doses. But I specifically look at ayahuasca as a poison. And I don't want to get into the old adage of the only thing that makes a difference between a poison and a medicine is dose. Um, I'm going to say here clearly that a medicine is something that relieves the symptoms of illness, and a poison is something that produces the effects of illness. And when you take ayahuasca, you are producing the effects of profound illness and poisoning. You get digestive cramps. You get nausea. You vomit. You have explosive diarrhea. You purge. You have fever-like delirium. You have a loss of coordination and an inability to keep yourself oriented in real space. It's like fevers, purging, delirium, hallucination. These are the symptoms of poisoning. And when you see people in an ayahuasca ceremony lying on their mats with their arms over their eyes, moaning or you know, sitting up and vomiting, Or running to the to the loo to relieve themselves violently this does not look like a healing ceremony this looks like everybody has been poisoned looks like everybody has been poisoned and they're just waiting for the poison to work its way through the system so that they can feel better again and again if all you're doing is looking to flush all the water out of your body there's no quicker way to do it than this because Your body does not want a lot of DMT floating around in your system. It just doesn't. There are biological mechanisms, like the monoamine oxidase, that will get rid of these stray amines, these stray monoamines in your body, so they don't interfere with your regulatory systems, specifically your cardiovascular systems and your brain, which rely on monoamines to keep them in homeostasis so that when you have DMT enter your system, it changes your vasoconstriction, constriction, your blood pressure, your ability to focus. All of these things are compromised because your monoamine systems, your serotonin systems, are interrupted by, by the DMT. And normally, if you eat a plant with DMT in it, your MAO will destroy the DMT within minutes. Within minutes, the DMT will be destroyed and it will be metabolized and it will be on the way out of your body. But when you take the yahe or the DMT, I mean, when you take the chacruna or the DMT with the yahe, the vine, the MAO inhibitor in the vine allows the DMT to stay in your system much longer than it should, and that causes your body to go into a poison reaction response. Poison reaction response, which means you cannot focus on the horizon. You want to throw up everything starts to move and become destabilized. It's very much like motion sickness, and motion sickness and poisoning by a hallucinogen are very similar. When you, when you have motion sickness, like when you're on a boat, it's because the horizon and your eyeline are not locked together. If the horizon starts drifting up and down in relation to your eyeline, something in your inner ear will tell you that things are wrong. And when your inner air, the, the, the little delicate fluids in your inner ear, which measure your balance against your horizon line to make sure that you're staying upright, when those little inner ear tingles start to say, hey, our horizon line is off, we're drifting off our horizon, the first thing that happens is you start to get sick. Now, why do you get sick? Why do you get seasick? when your horizon line starts drifting because of the wobbling of the boat or the movement of the vehicle or whatever you're in, why do you get sick when you have this moving horizon line in in relation to your eye line? Well, the reason you get sick is because your body immediately assumes you've been poisoned. Because if your eye line cannot stay level with the horizon, that means something very wrong has happened in your body. So whatever you have eaten recently must immediately come back up. And this is what happens in in ayahuasca ceremonies. So this ritual poisoning and purging, it's it's not magic. There's no magic to it. It's just extreme. It's just a very extreme, profoundly deranging and resetting thing that happens to the human body that appears magical in its extremeness now sometime after the donald topping article came out in maps when the ayahuasca craze was on full tilt i began brewing ayahuasca and experimenting with ayahuasca because i thought maybe there was something there maybe it is a miracle cure maybe it can be employed to treat cancer maybe it can be employed to treat all sorts of things so through some sources in mexico and south america i was able to purchase the raw supplies the, that I needed to make ayahuasca. And I made it with, um, you know, yahe vine, chacruna leaves. Um, I used mimosa hostilis. I used paganum harmala, the Syrian rue seeds as an MAO inhibitor. I made all different kinds of ayahuasca mixes to see if there was any significant difference between say ayahuasca made with mimosa and paganum harmala versus the traditional way, making it with the the chacruna and the yahe. And really, I found that there was no difference between any of the ayahuasca brews that I did. They all tasted vile. They all tasted like I was drinking my own vomit, which was really the hardest part for me. I mean, trying to gag down something that just tastes like it should be coming up is the worst part about it. I mean, every time I, 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 I drink ayahuasca, I feel like I just threw up in my mouth. And I'm trying to force it down because I have nowhere to spit it out. And it's gross. It's horrible. Um, I've heard people say that, oh, yeah, after you try it, you know, 20 or 30 times, you, you start to crave that taste. You really start to crave that taste. And I go, 20 or 30 times? Come on. How many times do you really need to suffer through this? Uh, you know, and I've heard people who study with shaman, oh, yeah, you really need to do it like 20, 30, 40 times before you get the hang of it. And I just think, you're crazy. Why would you want to do that 20 or 30 times just to get the hang of it, just to get the hang of not throwing up and shitting yourself all over the place and enjoying the taste? It's, it's crazy to me. So I started experimenting with ways to extract the active ingredients from the plants so that I could make capsules, ayahuasca capsules that you could take. And I got pretty good at being able to extract everything down to a pill, like a latex pill. like all of the, the rubber and latex in the plants gets cooked down and evaporated until there's just, a, there's just the resin left. And you can roll the balls up balls of ayahuasca resin up into the size, you know, of about a jawbreaker, and swallow that hole with a lot of water. And that will give you the same effect of ayahuasca without the horror of trying to drink the whole brew down across your tongue without gagging. That's horrible. Now, of course, eating it in a ball and drinking water still causes the same thing. You get the ayahuasca burps, which are equally as gross. And no matter how hard I tried to get an ayahuasca preparation that didn't make me feel like I was eating or drinking my own vomit, it I could not get it to work. I eventually gave up on ayahuasca because as interesting and visual as the hallucinations were, the physical effects were just awful. I I didn't like the taste, I didn't like the way it made me feel. I didn't like I don't like the vomiting and the purging and um even though, you know, I would fast and 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 take a, you know, specialized diet, I didn't always purge, but it always made me feel slightly off, slightly sick, no matter how hard I tried to mask the taste. And ultimately, it really doesn't last that long. I mean, the, 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 the length of the ayahuasca trip, once you get over the nausea and the purging and you start the hallucinations, it's really maybe only an hour, an hour and a half before it's over. And the peak is really only, you know, a few minutes, 20 minutes or so. And it's hard to keep taking it and keep taking it because the taste is so foul. You just want it to be over and you want it to be done. So I've never really been a huge fan of ayahuasca. And I've been invited down to the Amazon to various different ayahuasca retreats to do ayahuasca in a, in a traditional ceremony with a shaman. And I just said, no way. There is no way... I am going down to the jungle to put myself in an even more uncomfortable place to take this vile, vomitous brew with a shaman who is probably crazy. There's no way that I'm going to go down there and let a crazy man or person serve me a potion that I have no idea what's in it that I know is going to make me violently ill. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you, can you imagine saying, yeah, I'm going to go down to the jungle and let a crazy person give me a brew that's going to make me violently ill. That's what I'm doing for my vacation. No, thank you. No, thank you. if you've been listening to these 10 episodes of Dose Nation, and you're all up to speed so far, uh, you know the drill. You know what's coming next. Uh, it's not all fun and games in the ayahuasca community, and it's not all healing and light. Which is one of my biggest problems with the ayahuasca community is the level of propaganda and disingenuousness that the hype people in the hi- in the ayahuasca community use to paint the picture of what's going on in an ayahuasca ceremony according to them it's a spiritual exercise where you become one with nature and you commune with the guy in mind all of the spokespeople for the ayahuasca community Who write the books and do the documentaries and run the retreat centers they are all locked to the same line of BS which is that ayahuasca is a sacred medicine it is a spiritual medicine for healing spiritual maladies and they will allow you to slough off the anxiety of modern culture and the depression of living in the modern age, and allow you to reconnect to something more primal and profound, like the guy in mind. And to hear some people tell it, ayahuasca is at the center of some global awakening of consciousness. Taking ayahuasca is a magical step for you. It is a practice for you. It is an exercise for you to aid in the psycho-spiritual healing of the earth. And as I've covered in previous episodes, the notion of the psycho-spiritual healing of the earth is a deluded and megalomaniacal attitude. Nobody's job is to aid in the psycho-spiritual healing of the earth. It is some kind of mystical martyr syndrome that the new age has taken upon themselves. They're the ones, through drinking ayahuasca and meditating and mindfulness and trance dancing, they're going to save the planet. They're going to be the ones, the, the Dionysian cult of intoxication and celebration, they're going to be the ones that save the planet. They're the heroes of the day, the people who go and drink ayahuasca and, and vomit and shit all over themselves. They're actually, They're actually not having some sort of hedonistic retreat into the jungle which is completely self-serving and narcissistic because they really want to look within and fix whatever uh, spiritual disorder they might have no that's 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 not what's going on they're actually heroes saving the planet at least according to the literature and the documentaries and the people apparently at the center of this movement to save the world from itself are the masters, these these shaman, that are apparently the keepers of the ancient secrets that will allow users of their ceremonial magic to embrace their higher selves and activate their higher consciousness so that they can become better citizens in the world. Or something along those lines. I don't know. It's always confusing to me when I hear people try to explain ayahuasca in something more than just recreational drug use, because that's what I see. I see people going down there on vacation for recreation. I don't see people aiding in the psycho-spiritual regeneration of the earth, and I don't see people becoming heroes, or I don't even see people becoming wiser or more insightful. I just see people, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting way to go spend a week, get high, try a couple different plants and brews, and then, and then come home and go back to, to life as usual. And, you know, in truth, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see anything wrong with that. If somebody wants to go take a vacation to the jungle and, you know, blow their mind out on ayahuasca, that's, that's fine with me. What I don't like is the new age wallpaper that goes over that, that tries to convince people that they're engaged in something more serious than that, or, or somehow well, deeper and more profound than that. Because I think at its core, that's essentially a lie. That is a lie that is forwarded to promote this industry of ayahuasca tourism. Because without the psycho spiritual element, really, you're just a drug dealer. You can set up the the fanciest ayahuasca retreat you want, and you can hire a very accomplished shaman with a great reputation, and you can have all of the mythos and spirituality and ritual you want but really what you're doing is you're selling drugs. You're selling people hallucinogens, and that's that's the business. And instead of selling a hit of acid for 50 cents, which is when I was growing up, that was about the going rate of a hit of acid, especially if you were buying it in, in a sheet or a strip. Um, that will last for 12 hours, and you don't even need to leave your living room. 50 cents, 12 hours of hallucination, don't have to leave your living room. That's a pretty good deal. But the ayahuasca, you have to get on a plane and fly to the Peruvian Amazon, take a day to get down there out into the boondocks and pay thousands of dollars to a delusional megalomaniac who's going to brew you a couple dollars worth of leaves at most and serve it to you with, with absolutely no boundaries and no safety at all in a foreign place where even things like the law and access to proper health care are out of reach. And I get the sense that people are willing to do this. They're willing to go to the jungle and put their life in the hands of a shaman, of a delusional megalomaniac. They're willing to put their lives in the hands of this, this crazy person because they think that getting the hallucinogen from the source plant Somehow that's a more authentic experience than dropping acid in your living room and tripping out for eight to 12 hours. Somehow it's more authentic if you really have to travel and you get the plants from somebody who's wearing the ceremonial garb of a shaman or who, who practices the ancient ceremonial rituals of a shaman. That's a more authentic experience. That's not a recreational drug experience that's a that's a spiritual experience and what makes it a spiritual experience is the theater the ritual and the theater I mean and that's really the only difference between buying a hit of acid or a bag of mushrooms off the street or flying all the way to Peru to do ayahuasca in a ceremony the only difference is the theater and people can argue up and down all they want about the culture of ayahuasca and then and the, sh- the shamanic heritage and the, and the cultural tradition, and how it's bound together in this, you know, sacred mythology. I don't care. At its core, it's people taking drugs and hallucinating. And the reason they're going down there is to take drugs and hallucinate. And they can couch that in whatever they want, whatever kind of healing or spirituality they want. That's the core. They're looking for drugs. They want an authentic drug experience and for many of the people who experience an ayahuasca retreat they have a great time the jungle surrounding is beautiful everything is peaceful the people that they meet are nice and friendly the ceremonies that they partake in are strange and arduous and frightening and weird but ultimately rewarding in some way and when you leave uh, ayahuasca retreat and come back to the real world there is a sense of losing something In the industrialized world, we've lost that primal quality of being at peace, out in nature, and being able to truly relax and commune. And I would submit that you could take a week-long vacation to the Peruvian Amazon or upriver Amazon and not take ayahuasca. Just spend a week hanging out with the people and living life the way that they live their life, and it would be just as rewarding an experience because it's new. It takes you out of your element. You, uh, you know, you need to adapt to new situations and new sensations, and all of that is very, it's very satisfying. You know, the novelty of a new place, a new surroundings, and especially in a natural surrounding, um, there is nothing more peaceful than that. But then you add the ayahuasca then you add the ceremony and no matter how you try to couch the ceremony and the ayahuasca ritual in the spiritual theater still at its core you cannot hide the fact that psychedelics that hallucinogens make people insane like William Burroughs said in the Yahe letters it causes complete derangement of the senses and it doesn't matter how practiced your shaman is or how nice your retreat center is having people on ayahuasca with their senses deranged is an inherently dangerous thing ayahuasca ceremonies are inherently dangerous because you have a group of people who are all going insane at the same time and the shaman is there to hold it all together theoretically the shaman should be there to hold it all together. That's why you go to a shaman, so that you have some protection and some organization and some sort of regulation of the ritual so the insanity doesn't get out of hand. However, we know that it does. And this is something that I find really um, hard to believe or hard to swallow about the ayahuasca retreat community, because I was talking to somebody Uh, This was maybe about 10 years ago over email when we were talking about ayahuasca ceremonies. And like I said, over the years, I get emails, I get contacted by people who have had a psychedelic experience that's gone sideways, that's turned into a psychotic episode. And they have a bad trip, which leads to lingering effects, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression. Um, I've already talked a little bit about you know, kind of the manic side effects that come along with a, a psychotic episode, especially a powerful psychotic episode. And I asked the, the guy who ran one of these famous retreat centers in, in South America, I said, how many people have you come through your retreat? And, and he said, oh, probably thousands, two, three thousand by now. And I said, of all those experiences that people have had down there, have there ever been any bad trips? Have there, Has there ever been anybody who like lost it and had a bad trip and, and had to be talked down and had like a really bad negative reaction that, you know, caused like a lasting psychosis? And he was like, nope, never happens. Thousands and thousands of trips, nope, never happens. Never had customer complain. Everyone's always been fully satisfied. Never been a bad trip. And I thought, hmm, that Seems unlikely. And then I thought, well, maybe there's something about the ayahuasca, you know, sort of the overpowering nature of the ayahuasca that keeps people from freaking out too much, kind of keeps them on the floor, or keeps them from, you know, getting too crazy, just because it's so somatically overwhelming, uh, the nausea and the purging, and then the delirium. Or maybe it was something about having the shaman there, you know, the, the comforting voice of the of the shaman. You know, singing an Ikaro and ushering everybody into the spirit realm where they can have a beautiful, wonderful time without worrying about the real world, the dangers of the real world interfering with their hallucination. But now I know that that's not true because I've actually met people who've gone to the Amazon to do ayahuasca ceremonies who came back with negative experiences to report. Either that the shaman was negligent, that they were given an inappropriate dosage, that they had a bad reaction and there was nobody there to help them, that they were, they were treated badly when they had a bad reaction. They were basically set off to the side by themselves and not given any help at all. Uh, there are people who claim that they were, they were ripped off that uh, a shaman came to them and decided to sell them a very, very special, extra potent bottle of ayahuasca for the low, low price of 500 to to $1,000 U.S. And upon returning home with that ayahuasca, they found out that, oh, it's nothing special. In fact, it's kind of weak ayahuasca. So there are lots of things that go on. Oh, and not to mention... Um, reports of sexual harassment and sexual abuse against women by shaman who were there supposedly to take care of them and lead them through a spiritual experience who then once they were deranged and high on ayahuasca were sexually assaulted i mean these these are really really horrible things that happen and To have an organizer of an ayahuasca retreat say, nope, nobody's ever complained, nobody's ever had a bad experience, everybody walks away feeling 100% percent a to me just raised some red flags and alarm bells. And I talked to a lot of people who spent time down there, and the more research I did, the more I found that there were bad stories. And it seems like the more popular that ayahuasca tourism becomes, the more these stories come out. And I guess that's only natural because the more people you have going down there, the more chance you have for accident and disaster. And there are a few stories I'd like to share with you to show you how this lie of the ayahuasca retreat being a place of healing and peace is just paper thin. It's paper thin. Because when things get out of control, they get really out of control. I'm going to start off here uh, reading a story about a British man named Unayas Gomez. Unayas Gomez is perhaps not the most famous victim of ayahuasca ceremony foul play. But um, it is maybe one of the more grisly stories of foul play in an ayahuasca ceremony. And I will just read f- to you from the news report from December 17th, 2015, from Reuters in the Oddly Enough section. And the title of the story is Canadian Man Kills Brit in the Psychedelic Ceremony in Peru's Amazon. Now, I saw this article and thought, what the hell is going on here? This sounds weird. So I'm just going to read verbatim from the article and um, come back and talk about it in a minute. Quote, A Canadian man killed a British man after the two took a hallucinogenic plant brew known as ayahuasca together at a spiritual retreat in the Peruvian Amazon, authorities said Thursday. A spiritual retreat, that's my aside. I always call it a spiritual retreat. Isn't that interesting? Witnesses told police the Canadian man, 29-year-old Joshua Andrew Freeman Stevens, killed the British man, Unaias Gomez, 26, in self-defense after Gomez attacked him with a knife during an ayahuasca ceremony near the jungle city of Iquitos. Uh, this, according to the police chief, Normando Marquez, um, of, Iqu- of Iquitos, The article goes on, ayahuasca is a combination of an Amazonian vine and dimethyltryptamine containing plants that give users a psychedelic experience when combined. It is not normally associated with violence, which is true. It's not normally associated with violence. However, people do sometimes have violent reactions to psychedelics, and this is a real problem. The article continues, witnesses said Gomez tried to stab Stevens During a bad trip, Gomez apparently used a knife from the kitchen of the alternative health center, Phoenix, Ayahuasca, to attack Stevens. Stevens ended up killing Gomez with the same knife, stabbing him in the chest and stomach. And the uh, final line of the very short article says, Phoenix, Ayahuasca retreat did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Its Facebook page describes it as a safe place to experience plant medicines and explore the true nature of the self. Okay. Unais Gomez had a bad trip. He picked up a kitchen knife and tried to stab another person who he was tripping with. Now, the incident did not end there, Because the person who came under attack then got control of the knife, turned it back on Gomez, and stabbed him in the chest and stomach until he died. Now, not only does this not sound like a safe place to experience plant medicines, it also exposes what the true nature of the self is. And the true nature of the self is unpredictable you cannot predict how someone is going to react to an ayahuasca trip they could have a bad trip they could have a panic attack and in a panic attack the true nature of the self goes primal fear paranoia adrenaline all leads to violent attack and self-defense and I can only imagine how bad it must have been for Joshua Andrew Freeman Stevens to feel that his life was in danger. 29-year-old Joshua Stevens was attacked by a guy with a knife while high on ayahuasca, wrestled the knife away from his attacker, and then stabbed him in the chest and stomach during an ayahuasca ceremony. This does not sound like psycho-spiritual regeneration of the Earth. This sounds like two young men were stripped down to their most primal and violent nature, where self-defense and fight-or-flight takes over to the point where a deadly knife fight ensues. A deadly knife fight now it must have been a knife fight to the death otherwise I don't know why Joshua Stevens would have killed Unaias Gomez once he got control of the knife but apparently control of the knife did not stop Unaias Gomez from attacking Stevens had to stab him in the chest and stomach and kill him to stop whatever what was whatever was going on and I have to ask myself Where was the shaman during all this? Why didn't the shaman bust out a magical Ikaro that caused everybody to, you know, chill out and relax and go back on their spirit quest? Why didn't the spirits intervene and, you know, stop this this bloody lethal violence from happening in the middle of their ceremony? And the reason none of that happened is because it's all bullshit. The shaman has no control over the ceremony. And there are no spirit helpers to save you when you get into deep water like that everybody is essentially out on their own everybody's essentially hanging themselves out sticking their necks out on this adventure through mystical revelation that can turn horrible and deadly in a second And the fact that these incidents are not discussed more in the ayahuasca community and are basically swept under the rug is very troubling to me. It's very troubling to me because when you're locked into this mindset of psycho-spiritual healing and, you know, communing with the guy in mind and the mystical spiritual nature of exploring the inner self, it's very hard to make that party line jibe With the reality of somebody freaking out and pulling a knife and having a bloody knife battle lethal knife battle in the middle of an ayahuasca ceremony that story does not fit into the narrative of psycho spiritual regeneration and a safe place to experiment with plant medicines and explore the true nature of the self an incident like this exposes that lie and reminds people, "Oh yes, ayahuasca causes a derangement of the senses and it can make people go insane." That narrative gets left totally out of the picture. That narrative is ignored and and in many cases covered up with lies by people who run these retreats and say, Nope, we've never had anybody have a bad experience ever. Now, maybe back in 2003 or 2004, that was true, because there weren't a whole lot of people coming down to the Amazon for ayahuasca tourism. But it has exploded in the last 10 or 15 years. And you have people coming from all over the world to the Amazon, to South America, to try ayahuasca theoretically under the guise under the watchful eye of a master of a shaman because that should theoretically be safer than experimenting on your own but obviously it's not because when people lose control and go primal the only way to keep them safe is to throw them in a rubber room somewhere where they cannot hurt themselves until the drugs wear off because you know, hallucinogens are very unforgiving when you pass that line. When you pass that line into panic, if you don't have someone there immediately to talk you down or restrain you, you can become primal, violent, to the point where you're thrashing around, you're biting people. Um, And I've heard reports of this on all sorts of different hallucinogens, where people just, just break and go primal and they need to be, you know, arrested, locked up, sent to the hospital, get shot up with Thorazine, or whatever it it takes to bring them down. Because once they go primal, and once they start thrashing about, they are only a danger to themselves and others. There is no good outcome from that. There is no, oh yeah, sometimes bad trips can be really helpful. No, that is not a helpful bad trip when you go primal and violent and start attacking people. That is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you, ever. There is no putting a happy face on that. That is just out and out poison, poisoning, overdose, derangement, lethal outcome. And I and I can only imagine what the rest of the people at that ayahuasca ceremony thought as Unayas Gomez sat there on the ground, bleeding out from being stabbed in the chest and stomach. And I can only imagine how Joshua Stevens felt having to stab Unais Gomez and then watch him die while high on ayahuasca. Can you imagine anything more grisly? Probably not, although let's keep going. Let's talk about the case of Kyle Nolan, an 18-year-old from Northern California who went to the Shimbre ayahuasca retreat in August of 2012 to take ayahuasca with the master Mon Cluto, who was featured in the documentary... Stepping into the Fire, which came out in 2011. Now, I can only assume that Kyle Nolan saw the documentary Stepping into the Fire and decided, hey, I want to go to Shimbre I want to do ayahuasca with Master Luto. This looks like a cool thing. Now, in that documentary, which I've watched bits and pieces of, I don't think I've ever sat down and watched it all the way through, but I've seen enough of it to see how it follows the basic pattern of these ayahuasca documentaries where they interview people who come down to the center to talk about what they hope to find. And, you know, there is a guy suffering from cancer who is coming to Shimbre to treat his remission instead of doing chemotherapy. And there's all of this mystical spiritual music playing in the background as this man talks about how this Trip to the ayahuasca center is going to give him a new lease on life. It's going to show him a new way to live his life. He's got all of these things that he wants to open up his life to. And this ayahuasca ceremony is going to be not the end of his life facing cancer, but the beginning of his post cancer life. And I just find it heartbreaking that these people show up at these ayahuasca centers thinking, maybe even hoping and praying. That they're going to be healed by this ancient jungle magic when the reality is there's no evidence that anybody who's ever gone to one of these ceremonies has ever been healed of anything now I'm an atheist I'm a materialist I'm a very reductive person and I have very low trust and confidence in anybody who calls himself a shaman for a variety of reasons and I know that people say that there are good shaman and there are bad shaman, and that anybody can find themselves under the thrall of a bad shaman who is promising to treat them, to treat their illness, as if it was possible for the shaman to do whatever it was that they desired. I had heard through the community grapevine before 2012 that Master Moncaluto at the Chimbre Center was a dangerous guy. Not only was he insane, not only was he a megalomaniac, not only was he delusional and thought that he was the reincarnation of some ancient shamanic line, but he was also very careless with the people who put their lives in his hands. He would brew dangerous batches of ayahuasca containing Datura or Toei and other secret ingredients that he thought gave his ayahuasca an edge over other people's ayahuasca. He also didn't conduct a regular ayahuasca ceremony like most shaman. He would start the ceremony, give everybody the ayahuasca, let them drink, and as the medicine started to work, as it started to come on, he would release everybody in the ceremony out into the jungle to just wander around on their own. Because... According to him, that's the way that they would learn the most. And if you've seen the documentary, if you've been to Chimbre, if you've seen pictures of Chimbre, you know that there is a a large tower-like structure where the ceremony takes place. And once everybody has taken the ayahuasca, they are allowed to leave the tower, walk down to the river, walk down to the jungle, and just wander around high as a kite in the middle of the jungle, sometimes in pitch black. Darkness. And Mon Caluto says it's perfectly safe because up in the tower he stays in telepathic contact with everybody in the ceremony, so he can protect everybody from what's going on using his his super magical shaman telepathy. Again, he was delusional. All these guys are delusional. I don't place Mon Caluto higher or lower than any other shaman. Even though I had heard warnings about this guy previously. Now, being a dangerous shaman um, not paying attention to the people under your care um, giving them a super potent brew of ayahuasca to, to make your reputation stand out all of that is fairly sketchy and people in the ayahuasca community had voiced their concerns about mon Caluto and the reckless practices at the Shimbre center But the people who ran the Shimbra Center were so petty and defensive that they thought that their competitors were just trying to smear their reputation because it is a competitive market. There are a handful, maybe a dozen, ayahuasca retreat centers all competing for the same small pool of ayahuasca tourists. And Shimbra Center had this great documentary, Stepping into the Fire, this great tower, where you know people could have this magical experience and this famous shaman mon Cluto, who is going to give you the most powerful ayahuasca experience available now enter 18 year old kyle nolan imagine this 18 years old barely an adult um, going down to the amazon presumably for the first time to try this wonderful experience now I don't know how he talked his parents into letting him go down to the Amazon to take ayahuasca. Maybe they watched the documentary together. Maybe his parents, for being from Northern California, were kind of hippie and new agey and thought that maybe this would be an interesting experience for him. I don't know his entire backstory. I personally would not let my eighteen-year-old child go down to South America unaccompanied to do an ayahuasca ceremony no matter how nice the documentary was or their website was or how great a reputation their shaman had, I would just say, no, it's too dangerous. You're not going. But apparently, um, Kyle Nolan and his parents were under the impression that ayahuasca was, quote, perfectly safe and that it was a spiritual exercise and that the retreat was a safe place for exploring the inner self. And this is all fine and good and I'm sure that Kyle Nolan and his parents were expecting that he would have a magical experience and return back changed and full of spiritual energy and ready to start his adult life with a new open heart and spiritual wisdom but then all that hope and expectation I'm sure instantly evaporated when kyle nolan's plane home landed and he was not on board that plane kyle nolan had gone missing his parents had no idea what happened to him they called down to South America, to the Chimbre Retreat Center, and they asked, what happened to my son? Where is Kyle? He was supposed to be home on this plane, and he never arrived. Can you tell me what happened to him? And what the operators of the Chimbre Center told her was that sometime during the week when Kyle was staying there, He just wandered off on his own and left, and they had no idea where he went. According to the good people at the Shimbre Spiritual Ayahuasca Retreat Center, Kyle Notland just wandered away on his own accord and vanished into the jungle. And I don't know how many of you out there are parents, but I just want you to think about this for a second. And put yourself in the shoes of Kyle Nolan's mother, talking to the Shimbre Retreat Center on the phone and learning that her son had disappeared into the Peruvian jungle. And instead of returning home with newfound spiritual insight and a life experience that he would take with him into the rest of his adulthood, Kyle Nolan... Her baby boy was gone. As I said, I can only imagine the horror that Kyle's mother um, went through upon learning that her son had vanished. She called the police in Peru. She called everybody she could think of. She called the airlines. She even went to Peru to search for him herself. She went to the Chimbre Retreat Center, and she confronted the operators and Mon and demanded that they tell her where their son was. And I personally would not believe any of this myself if it wasn't so well reported. There is a posting on the DMT nexus from a member named Forrest, who was staying at the Chimbrae Retreat Center the week after Kyle Nolan was there, and he witnessed Kyle's mom and sister come to the Chimbrae Center looking for their son when they were told that, they had no idea what happened to him he just vanished and forrest says that the um, vibe at the shimbrae center that week was especially weird and he didn't know why until the mother and the showed up with the police looking for her son and still they denied knowing anything about where he was it was only after Moncaluto was taken into police custody and interrogated did he finally give up the truth that Kyle Nolan had died during one of the ayahuasca ceremonies or one of the ceremonies and was found dead in his tent, according to Moncaluto. Then what did they do with the body? Did they inform? The authorities what happened? Did they take him to the closest hospital so that he could be treated or so an autopsy could be performed? No, they did none of that. According to the police, Mon Caluto, all by himself, took Kyle Nolan's body out into the jungle and buried him under a bush in a shallow grave. And the entire time Kyle's mother questioned them about where he was, and the entire time the police questioned him about where Kyle was, the people at the Shimbrae Ayahuasca Retreat lied and said that he had wandered away and disappeared into the jungle. When the reality was that someone had dragged him into the jungle like roadkill and dumped him under a bush and buried him in a shallow grave now there's a lot to discuss about this incident um, because there's a lot of things that are very telling not only about what happened here but also in the reaction of the community i watched all this unfold in real time in 2012 and i watched the news articles and the comments threads On the boards where people post about these sorts of things and what i can tell you was that the lack of sympathy for kyle nolan was overwhelming the psychedelic community for whatever reason has a difficult time dealing with tragedies like this and i think it is because every time someone dies In an ayahuasca ceremony it is an assault against the legitimacy that they are so desperately trying to establish for the ayahuasca ceremony if somebody dies during an ayahuasca ceremony it cannot be the fault of the ayahuasca it cannot be the fault of the shaman the victim must have done something wrong and you will see this if you do any research on this and you look at the comments threads on all of, the, all of the chats and discussions related to this case. You will see over and over again people trying to fight this tragedy with knowledge. Everybody has an opinion about why Kyle died. Maybe there was toe or Datura in the ayahuasca. They caused it to be super potent. And this is a really dangerous thing that only the, the bad, irresponsible shaman do. So it wasn't ayahuasca, it was this this nasty datura that was put into the drink that caused Kyle to die. Or maybe Kyle was on some kind of medication that interacted with the ayahuasca that caused him to die. And he wasn't given enough information to talk about drug interactions. And so it wasn't the ayahuasca's fault. It was some interaction with a prescription drug. Or maybe there was some dietary thing that he did wrong. Maybe he was eating things that you weren't supposed to eat before you took ayahuasca that interacted badly with the ayahuasca, with the MAO inhibitor or, you know, whatever. There's all this kind of speculation. There's all this kind of protective speculation to figure out why it was that Kyle Nolan died from the most benign of spiritual medicines ayahuasca how could this benign spiritual medicine kill somebody just like that in the middle of the night in the middle of a ceremony it must not have been the ayahuasca it must have been something else it must have been something else this is this is the, the thread the line of thinking that i see in all of these posts and then, there is this open letter to the ayahuasca community, which is published on ayahuasca.com, which is a, a PR reaction to this tragedy, which attempts to throw Mon Caluto under the bus for being a reckless and irresponsible shaman. And in this statement, they say, quote, During the Shimbre incident, in quotes, we believe this sacred medicine was administered by an irresponsible practitioner who did not follow the ancient traditional practice of staying with the seeker or student to ensure physical and spiritual safety. Instead, in an affront to traditional practice, he, Monkaluto, sent his charges off alone into the jungle to fend for themselves following a superficial ceremony, in quotes. And here in this letter, they attempt to hang out the Chimbrae Center for being a reckless uh, practitioner, for providing a bad scene operated ineptly by unqualified people, and that their administration of ayahuasca didn't follow ancient spiritual practices, and that they were irresponsible, and that's... The bad thing that happened here. It wasn't the ayahuasca. It was the the bad, reckless behavior of the people who were running the show. And I read this letter, and it's signed by all the luminaries in the ayahuasca movement. You can find this letter online. It's a public statement to the ayahuasca community on ayahuasca.com about the Kyle Nolan death. And all I can think of when reading this letter is, Fuck you. Fuck you. You dumb ass pieces of shit. Fuck you. Covering your asses and trying to protect your sacred traditional medicine from being besmirched by the reckless practices of a bad shaman in a bad scene. Fuck you. Because you know what? Sometimes, even in the best of circumstances, accidents happen. People die. The unforeseen, the unthinkable, the terrible thing happens. Someone dies. And when someone dies in your care, someone has to take responsibility. And instead of blaming the ayahuasca, or the improper preparation, or the fact that the shaman let the let the ceremonial participants wander out into the jungle on their own, is not the issue. The issue is that once the accident happened, once Kyle Nolan died, instead of acting like a normal human being with a soul and a conscience, Mon Kaluto and whoever else was with him decided that the proper course of action was to drag Kyle Nolan's body out into the jungle like a dead animal and bury him under a fucking bush. And these are not the actions of a spiritually evolved master who has an ancient wisdom to pass on to people. These are the actions of a fucking soulless criminal who not only hid the body, but then lied and obfuscated to Kyle's mother and to the police and to anybody who would ask about what happened. And it exposes exactly what Mon Caluto thinks about the people who come to his ceremony. They are not people deserving respect and care. They are bucking customers who give him cash and when they die in your care, you lie about it and hide the evidence. And it's really easy to blame Moncluto for all of this, because theoretically, he's the shaman, he is in charge, it was his medicine that presumably killed kyle nolan although we will never know what killed kyle nolan because his body was buried in a fucking jungle for a week and a half until someone found it and dug it up so there's no way to do a proper autopsy on the body and in fact his parents tried to raise ten thousand dollars on a crowdfunding site to have the body brought home so a proper autopsy could get done i'm not sure that ever happened but That's really the point that they were at, is that they were trying to crowdfund enough money to bring Kyle's body home just so they can get an autopsy to figure out what happened. And of all the comments I see in all the chatter on this discussion, there's, oh, do we blame the ayahuasca? Do we blame a drug interaction? Do we blame Do we Do we blame the poor practices and the reckless nature of the ceremony? Fuck all that. Nobody is talking about the real crime, which is burying the body and telling the parents and police to go fuck off because they didn't want to deal with it. Now, Mon Caluto got hung out to drive for this. He he was he was prosecuted, arrested he went to court and he was sentenced to five years in prison and I can only assume he's still there, but this was this happened in 2012 so maybe he's out by now, I don't know. There's not a whole lot of information out there on him and I didn't really feel like doing the research to figure out where Mon Caluto is now because I could give a shit about that asshole. But what I find really interesting about this whole story is that if you watch Stepping Into the Fire or you watch any video snippets of Mon Caluto doing his thing. You will realize that Moncaluto is about five foot five and 120 pounds. He's not a big guy. Kyle Nolan was a strapping, 18-year-old dude, probably 5'10, 170 pounds. You do the math. How did Moncaluto by himself, drag Kyle Nolan's body out into the jungle and bury him? I say, impossible. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to pick up an unconscious or dead body. Even if they are a similar weight or even 20 or 30 pounds lighter than you, picking up a dead body and moving it by yourself is an extremely difficult thing to do. In fact, it's almost impossible unless you have a way to get the body up onto your shoulders so that you can firemen carry it to where you need to take it. So the story that Mon Kaluto All by his lonesome, found Kyle Nolan's body and then took it upon himself to, with superhuman strength, grab the body, pick it up and take it into the jungle and bury it all by himself, I find incredulous. It is not believable. Moncoluto had to have help from the people at the Shimbre Center burying Kyle Nolan's body, hiding it, and then lying to everybody about it. He could not have done it by himself. However, he, as far as I know, was the only one who had to face charges for this crime. And I don't see anybody talking about that. All people in the community care about is protecting the reputation of ayahuasca and ignoring the crime, the common crime that this shaman and his helpers committed in burying Kyle's body and then lying to his mother about it as if the consequences just didn't matter. And so when I say these guys are delusional megalomaniacs and crazy and that I would never put myself in their care, this is why. Because when shit goes wrong, they have no control and they don't want to take any responsibility and they don't give a fuck about you. And that's the truth. And I can hear many people out there saying, oh, but James, this is just one isolated incident, and people knew that Mon Caluto was bad before this happened, and they even, you know, had sent warnings to the Shimbray Center to say, cut it out, you're being dangerous. As if that makes up for the fact that there was... A crime committed here, and that the crime showed absolutely no sympathy or regard for human life at all. And sadly, this is not a one time incident. Kyle Nolan's case may be one of the most famous ayahuasca deaths just because of the horrific nature of what happened and because of the pre-existing reputation of Mon for being a bad shaman, or a reckless shaman. But wait, let's flash forward to April of 2014, and the case of Henry Miller, a 19-year-old from Bristol, England. 19 years old, backpacking through the Colombian rainforest, 19 year old Henry Miller from Bristol backpacking through the Colombian rainforest. While staying in Putumayo, Henry was told that a fun thing to do was to go off to one of the local villages and drink ayahuasca with the local shaman. And being an adventurous young lad, he decided that this was something that he wanted to do. So Henry Miller goes out into the Colombian rainforest and finds a shaman who will give him the ayahuasca ceremony over a period of many days. So he does one ceremony and videotapes some of it and has a pretty good time. And he decides he's going to do a second ceremony, the next night. And that's when the problem started. According to a news article from The Telegraph, quote, A fellow traveler has told how Henry made animal noises and tried to fly after taking the drug, which is said to create hallucinations more extreme than those caused by LSD, ketamine, or magic mushrooms. The witness said he wasn't speaking. He was lashing out with his hands and feet. Then he started making weird animal noises, pig sounds, and at one point he tried to fly. According to the article, at this point, The shaman and the shaman's family reassured the other tourists in the ceremony that they would look after Henry when he fell ill. And what happens next is just mind-blowing. Because while high on ayahuasca, Henry Miller is packed onto the back of a motorcycle and sent off through the jungle, presumably to be taken to a hospital for treatment, but somewhere along the way, Henry Miller didn't make it, and his body did not wind up at the hospital. It did not wind up at a police station. It did not wind up anywhere. It was found by the police a day later, dumped next to a nearby dirt track. When henry miller started to freak out on the ayahuasca ceremony becoming violent making animal noises very reminiscent of what happened to unais gomez this this was even his his second trip this was henry miller's second ceremony so he already knew what to expect from the ayahuasca it's not like he was a novice going into this on his second ceremony he starts to freak out goes primal Starts making animal noises, lashing out with his hands and feet, trying to fly. The shaman says, oh, there's a problem here. Let's get him out of here. He's packed onto the back of a motorcycle, sent away, presumably to take him to the hospital. And what happens? His body is dumped in the jungle like a fucking animal. Like a deer that was hit by the side of the road. A motorist just dragged him off, put him by the side of the dirt track, called it good. And so this is from the article. Ricardo Suarez, the Putumayo police commander, said evidence suggests the shaman leading the ceremony sent Henry to a hospital on a motorcycle with two young local men, but he died en route quote everything indicates the two young men panicked and left him on the side of the road mr. Suarez the police chief said so here's the deal you can say whatever you want about the spiritual ceremony the healing wisdom um, you know the ancient traditions etc etc but when stuff goes sideways None of that matters anymore. All of that stuff is exposed as a nice lie. And you can say to me, oh, James, these are just two isolated instances. And, you know, when a gringo dies in your ayahuasca ceremony, maybe, maybe they panicked. Maybe they they didn't know what to do, maybe they were they were scared, maybe they thought you know they would be in trouble if they told the police that this guy died. Maybe 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 maybe. My response is maybe these people should have acted like human beings, maybe these people should have acted like they actually gave a shit about the people that they were giving ayahuasca to. Maybe these people should have acted like they were spiritually mature people with a conscience who knew better than to just leave a dead body in the jungle. And maybe I'm being a cultural elitist. Maybe that's what you do with dead bodies in the jungle. Maybe when somebody dies in the jungle, it's just common procedure to drag their body out and leave them. Uh, maybe when somebody dies in an ayahuasca ceremony, the proper procedure is to, you know, bury them in a shallow grave because that's what the spirits want. But I find it hard to believe that even in their culture, even in the, even in the Amazonian culture, even in the most primitive backwater tribal culture, that this is okay. This is not okay anywhere. When somebody dies in your care, You take responsibility and you make sure that that person's body gets back to where it belongs so that their mothers and parents, their relatives and friends, don't wind up worrying about what happened to them. I mean, the fact that this has not only happened once but now twice is just incomprehensible to me. And how anybody can it just ignore these instances and go on spouting the line about ayahuasca being a spiritual medicine for, you know, reaching a new level of consciousness. I just have to say fuck that. These shamans who use ayahuasca as as a as a tourism, as a tourist attraction, they are not spiritually advanced. They do not have any greater spiritual authority than you or I. In fact, I would suggest that many of them are probably morally bankrupt and don't have any care what happens to you at all. All they care about is how much cash is in your wallet and how much drug they can give you without killing you. And you know what? If they make a mistake and they accidentally kill you, maybe it's your fault maybe it's your fault because of a drug interaction or because of something you ate it can't be ayahuasca's fault ayahuasca is a sacred healing medicine ayahuasca is pure if you die on ayahuasca it's because you've got some conflict with the spirit world you were supposed to die these are the these are the weird twisted logical knots that I see people in the psychedelic community going into. They can't come to grips with the fact that everything that they've been told about shamanism as like an evolved spiritual practice is bullshit. It is bullshit. These guys are just getting high in the jungle off of their local shit, And if you want to come down and, you know, get high with them on their local shit, they're fine with that, as long as you have cash. But you know what? If you die, then fuck you. You're on your own. We're just going to dump your body, because you know what? You're a dumb shit gringo. You're in over your head. The spirits don't care about you. Your spiritual evolution only leads to a shallow grave. As a member of the psychedelic community I find uh, these events to be troubling not because it points to the fact that ayahuasca may not be safe no it points to the fact that the people who claim to be spiritual practitioners are maybe not the greatest people in the world And I don't want to take just two isolated incidents and use this as a blanket indictment for all shaman or the practices of all ayahuasca retreat centers. And if there were only two incidences, that would be something. But the longer we go, the more this shit happens. And the more troubling the trend becomes. I'm going to read to you from another story here from February 4th, 2016, and the case of the young American Leslie Allison, who died in the Amazon jungle of Ecuador during an ayahuasca ceremony. And I'm going to read to you from an article in Latin American Current Events, entitled Ecuador, Young U.S. Woman Dies in Ayahuasca Ceremony in the Jungle. Leslie was known to be a free spirit and a spiritual person who was always interested in a new adventure. She arrived in the jungle to participate in a described ancient ceremony on or about the 12th of January, 2016. The ceremony was to last through January 25th. These rituals, which are claimed to be centuries old, were being directed by well-known shaman Miguel Chiriap, whose website claims that he has been a healer working with ayahuasca, or Natem and other medicines for 30 years. Approximately 30 participants paid over $1,000 apiece to experience the rituals that Mr. Cheeryop's website claims could cure many illnesses, such as cancer, as well as emotional problems. Okay, does all that sound familiar? Free spirit, young person... Heading to the jungle to experience a centuries-old spiritual ceremony? What could go wrong? Well, let me read the next paragraph. On January 14th, something went seriously wrong. And while participating in the exercises, Leslie Allison became seriously ill. There are reports that Miguel Chiriap tried to provide her aid, and others sang over her body. But she may have ultimately been left alone and suffered an agonizing death, leaving family and friends while she laid in the Amazon jungle. And here's the kicker. According to reliable sources, Mrs. Allison was not transported to any type of medical facility while struggling for her life, and that authorities were not notified immediately of her death. It wasn't until three days later that Miguel Chiriap was interviewed by police and was allowed to remain free. Here we see some familiar circumstances. Different shaman, totally different part of the Amazon, has a person in his care having a bad time, and instead of transporting her to a hospital or notifying authorities, Leslie Allison was removed from the ceremony and was left alone to suffer an agonizing death. She was not transported to any type of medical facility while struggling for her life. Authorities were not notified immediately of her death. It was days later before the police showed up to interview the shaman. Sound familiar? Now we can flash forward to November 16th, 2016. Again, in latinamericancurrentevents.com, Peru, U.S. tourist dies during ayahuasca ceremony. Quote, An American tourist died during a session of ayahuasca. The National Police found Christina Melissa Jenkins, 41, lifeless, leaning against the wall and lying on a bed on the floor. Now apparently this case happened in a residence. And... The person or people who gave Christina Melissa Jenkins the ayahuasca actually reported her death to the authorities on the same day that it happened. When the police arrived, they found her lifeless, lying in bed, propped up against a wall, and her body was removed and taken to a local morgue. Now, is this progress? I hope so, but at what cost?